Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. I'll be reading from Ephesians 5, 1-14. Be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving for this For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and, and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath has come on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, for it it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but in everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everyone visible. This is why it is said. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If you have been subjected to my preaching for any length of time, you know that the St. Louis Cardinals have played an outsized role in my life. Some would argue it's been too significant of a role in my life, and they might not be wrong. But for most of my childhood, the core of the St. Louis Cardinals lineup consisted of Albert Pujols, Scott Rowland, and Jim Edmonds. Now, Albert Pujols would bat third, he'd play first base, and he batted right-handed, and since I'm left-handed, it'll look a little weird, but Albert would always through the zone a little bit like that, and then he would always put a lot of his weight back on, the, on his back leg and hold the bat really high up in the air, and he was always really still and calm when he stood in the batter's box. And then after him would come Scott Rowland. And Scott Rowland played third base. He also batted right-handed. And he would stand really balanced in the batter's box. And he would wave his bat over the plate like this. And when he was waiting on the pitch to come, it was, it was real active like this. It was almost like he was trying to distract the pitcher with uh, his bat before the pitch came in. And after them would come Jim Edmonds. And Jim Edmonds played center field. And he batted left-handed. And I could never understand how Jim Edmonds did anything in the batter's box because his feet were always so wide. It was like one foot was at the front of the batter's box and the other one was at the back. And he would almost stand here like he was bored, holding the bat on his shoulders until the pitch was thrown. And then it was a whole thing of springing into action and things like that. And a lot of my childhood was spent watching and imitating those batting stances. And you might be thinking right now, well, did our preachers spend significant time this week studying up on the batting stances of baseball players that are now retired? And I can assure you that that saw required no research this week on my part. That is deeply ingrained within my, within my memory, within my psyche of who I am as a person. Sure, maybe I spent some time on YouTube this week watching clips from the 2004 National League playoffs, but that wasn't because I had to, it was because I wanted to. 
But my guess is we all have examples in our life that we find ourselves imitating, whether we intend or whether we set out to do so consciously or not. For as long as I can remember, my, my grandpa, my mom's dad, will always, anytime he has a straw wrapper, he will roll it up into a little ball before he throws it away or does anything with it. He's just always done that for, for my entire life, as long as I've been aware of such things. And a few years ago, my sister and I were driving somewhere, and we had stopped through a drive through to get lunch. And as we're driving along, it was silent for a moment, and I'm driving, and all of a sudden I hear my sister say, oh, no. And, you know, you're driving down the interstate, so you get a little concerned about what she's just seen or what's about to happen. I said, what, what, what's wrong? And she goes, I just rolled up this straw wrapper like Grandpa does, and I didn't even think about it. <laughs> we tend to imitate the examples that get set for us. We follow in the footsteps of those that have gone before us, whether we recognize it or not. It might be family members or mentors, friends, any person you have spent a significant amount of time with. My guess is you have been formed by that relationship. You've maybe taken on some of their expressions or their tendencies or their quirks or something like that because we're always being formed by the people around us. And human nature really hasn't changed all that much since the Apostle Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians. His day understood, just like ours, the tendency towards imitation that we all have to become like those that we focus on, that we spend time with. And in Paul's day, you would find writers, philosophers, uh, public speakers saying, be a good person to imitate the positive examples that were in the world, that you should aspire to be like the heroes of mythology, you should aspire to be like the king, because if you do, then, then life and the world will go well for you. And Paul taps into that language in the passage Mike has just read for us by calling us to become imitators of God as his beloved children. I don't know about you, but my guess is at least some of us pause when we hear the command, become imitators of God. And that might be humility, it might be insecurity, it might be something else, I don't know, but there's maybe a part of us that says, I, that seems a little presumptuous to think that I could in some way become imitators, an imitator of God. And yet that is what the Apostle Paul says at the beginning of this passage, become imitators of God as beloved children. Just as we might find ourselves imitating any number of examples set before us, whether they're celebrities or people we know, whatever it might be, Paul says to imitate the character of God, because if you are a follower of Jesus, you are his child. And a child will look like their father. And as Paul continues to describe how to follow Jesus as a community, which he's doing throughout this second half of the letter of Ephesians, he says that part of it looks like imitating our God and Father. So for a passage that begins with such a straightforward statement like that, at least for me, two questions come to mind out of that. The first one is, how do we do this? How do we become imitators of God? And the second question that comes out of that is, are we people who do this? The assumption is that the church has been called to imitate God, and that when those who are not a part of the church look at God's people, they will see that taking place. But we can't bring that reality about if we don't first understand how we are supposed to imitate God, what that specifically looks like. But thankfully, we're not left to wonder. Because after making this command, Paul describes what it looks like to carry this out. He expands on what he's already been telling us over the last chapter. He describes the calling of God's people because these are not commands for individuals who are pursuing enlightened spirituality on their own. This is for a group of people who are pursuing the call of Jesus together. 
So to answer that question of how do we do this, how do we become imitators of God, Paul will answer that question for us really under two headings. The first heading is to walk in love, and the second one is to walk in light. Uh, those are the headings over how we actually do this. But we shouldn't skip too quickly to the commands as if we're just receiving our marching orders because Paul says in verse 1 in the second half of the statement, he says, become imitators of God as beloved children. That's the context within this relationship. That is the context for this command of becoming a follower, an imitator of who God is. This all happens within a relationship of love. If you love someone and you know that they love you, if you know care about you, if you know they desire your good, you will have more of a desire to follow their example. You will aspire to become like them more readily. And we have that sort of relationship with God, and that is why Paul calls us to imitate him. We're not called to God because then we'll earn his favor and he'll lift the velvet rope for us and we'll get to come in and be his children. We're called to walk after the example of the one who loves us and empowers us to imitate him in all things in anticipation of the day work to completion in us and in our world if you are a follower of jesus the god who calls you his child is calling you to walk with him in love and in light so let's look at the path that's marked out for us and then ask ourselves what this walk is like for us because just as paul concluded chapter four by saying we are to forgive one another as christ has forgiven us he says here we are to walk in love as christ has loved that means that the love that Jesus has shown us defines for us what our love is supposed to look like. It is not the love of our world that often means, you know, just being nice and not saying anything that's going to hurt anyone's feelings. The love of Christ is most clearly demonstrated laying down his life for us as an offering and sacrifice to God. His love was not detached or theoretical. He left perfection in heaven to come to this imperfect world, to be born as an infant, fully experiencing what it means to be human, enduring torture and death on the cross that we deserved and he did not so that we could have life with our God. And that is the example that our love is called to imitate. We've not been called to a love that's committed as long as my needs are being met. We're not called to a love that's focused on myself. We're not called to a love that keeps everyone else at a distance so I can be protected and safe. We are called to a love that is concerned first and foremost with the needs of others trusting that as we do that, our needs will be met as well. We love as Jesus loves us. We give as Jesus has given to us. We sacrifice as he has sacrificed for us. And when we do, God is glorified. We don't love by our own power. We don't love for our own sake. We do it so that the power of the sacrificial love of Christ that transforms us might transform others as well. This love of Christ is not a free pass to do as we please. It was and is a love based on truth. It's a love that calls for behaviors and actions that are different. It's a love that calls us to walk in the footsteps of our Father. So it should not surprise us that after telling us that we are to love one another as Jesus has loved us, that Paul continues with commands about how to carry out this love in our life together, especially the things that are to be removed if we are going to walk in our Father's footsteps. One of those things that is to be removed in verse 3 is sexual immorality. Roman society was permeated with sex and its humor and its entertainment in public, in private, in every facet of life, in some ways that maybe aren't that different from our culture and in some ways that make our culture look pretty tame by comparison. 
if we ever read what the New Testament has to say about sexual immorality and think these are just prudes that lived in an earlier time and we've moved past that, we know better now, we don't actually know what the first century was like when we made those statements. Sex and immoral distortions of it were just as much a part of Paul's world as ours, if not more so. And yet Paul says that among God's people, there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality. That word translated sexual immorality in the original language is the word porneia, which is the word we get our English word pornography. It's a broad term. It refers to any form of sexual conduct that does not take place between a man and a woman who are faithfully committed to one another in marriage. That is what scripture consistently teaches regardless of the messages of our culture. That is what the church is called to embody. As people that have been made holy by the blood of Jesus, we are called to holiness in our most intimate relationships. Not viewing the other person as something that exists for my own fulfillment, but a place where we love and serve others as Jesus has loved and served us. It's like every other part of life. Because the gospel speaks into all of existence, Paul continues to say impurity and greed should not be present either. Within God's people, as we follow in our Father's footsteps, there should be nothing that is impure, nothing that might render filthy what Jesus has cleansed. There should be no greed, no mindset of wanting for ourselves at the expense of others. We have a God who has purified us through sacrificing himself for us. And so we approach our relationships with others with that same perspective. If we are to love others the way that God loves them, that will change how we speak to them and about them. There should be no foolish, harsh, or obscene talk among God's people. There's no place for language and humor that demeans and belittles another person. There's no place for words that mock someone who has been made in the image of God. There's no place for comments that make myself look better than someone else who is a sinner that Jesus had to die for just like I am. And maybe it's because so much of my job is spent saying words and thinking about how to say them, or maybe it's because sarcasm tends to be my love language that I think this is a big deal, but... I think it might be more than that. In the 24-hour news cycle, with the ability to communicate with the world at our fingertips, we can assume that we have to be quick with our words, that every little thing that happens, we need to weigh in with our opinions on social media. Everyone think before the news cycle moves on to the next thing, and yet we still have a God who tells us, as James says for us, that, that we are to be slow to speak and slow to become angry. There's no place among God's people for words and actions that endorse or ignore sin. There's no place for empty words that speak just for the sake of being heard without considering the wisdom of God. There's no place for humor that undermines the message of Jesus for a cheap laugh. And in a world filled with so much language that fits that cate- those categories, the church is called to something different. We're called to build others up. We're called to get rid of language that tears others down and choose language that is grateful and generous, offering a portrait of life that is far richer and far better than what the world settles for. But Paul does not just stop at saying, here's all the things that you can't do. He says to avoid these behaviors because those who participate in them are idolaters and will not receive the inheritance available to God's people. And that might sound like Paul's conflating different categories, at least it does to me, because he's just been talking about speech and sexual ethics and same things like that, and now he's talking about religion, and those might seem like different categories to us, but Paul seems to think they're pretty closely related. 
Because at the end of the day, idolatry is just trusting in anything except God alone to meet our needs for meaning and significance. And in Paul's day, that could have meant going to the temple of a false god or goddess such as Artemis in the city of Ephesus and offering sacrifices to them so that life would go well for you. In our day, it could consist of belonging to a different religion, but in Paul's day and in ours, it could also include a lot of other things. It could include greed, trying to find purpose in life through more. It could come to sexual pleasure, viewing fulfillment of our desires to be the be-all and end-all. Money and lust have been idols of the human heart almost from the very beginning. And these are the ways humans seem to have always tried to find meaning. And at the core, immorality, impurity, greed, idolatry, it all flows out of misplaced desires. Taking the good things God has given us and, rate, and using them inappropriately for temporary fulfillment. To do so cuts us off from the inheritance God has to give us. Because if you think about it, to be an heir to something includes elements that are both present and future. You have a status in the present, and that might require certain duties or actions on your part, but ultimately you're doing all of that with an eye towards the future for when you receive that inheritance. And that's how the people of God have been called to live. Walking in the footsteps of Jesus in the present, in light of the reward that he, that he will one day receive at the return of Christ when he makes all things new. And for those that reject life with God and faith life on their terms, indulging in impurity and greed and lust and all these other things condemned in these verses, the end is death. Judgment from God and separation from him because of our rejection of his ways. And we live in a culture that doesn't like the idea of a God that gets angry, but this is actually a comfort for us. Because compared to the gods of the Roman Empire that would fly off the handle for no reason in the stories that the Roman Empire believed, the message of the gospel says that God is consistent and faithful and he brings judgment against those things that are outside his will in a way that is consistent with his perfect character. Compared to the messages of our say that wronged you, it's up to you to make them pay, whether that's with the authorities or on social media or whatever it might be, the gospel says there will be a judgment where wrongs done will be dealt with and that will be final and it will be perfect the gospel says that God sees those who have been unjustly torn down the gospel says that God stands with those that have been taken advantage of and he will do something about it the gospel says that God created us for life with him and there will be a day when he gets rid of everything that brings about death and with his perfect justice and therefore his people should have nothing to do with the things that bring about death but this calling is not just for the sake of separation. Uh, Paul's not saying, get away from all those dirty, filthy people so that you don't get contaminated like they are. It's separation for the sake of taking a deeper hold of the gospel. It's separation from a life that ends in death so that we can take hold of life that walks in the footsteps of our Savior into life. It's a life that's thankful to God and generous towards others. Because life on our own is always looking for more because we don't think we have enough. Life on our own is one of entitlement, saying, I deserve better than what I have. Life on our own says that because I do not have enough, I can't look out for anyone. Else. I can't give beyond the bare minimum because that can get in the way of me having what I want. And life on our own says we have to look out for ourselves. Because if we don't, then who will? And life in the gospel says God takes care of us. And therefore, we can be thankful because he never forgives us. 
Life in the gospel says we can be generous because God has been generous towards us. We can look out for others because we know that God looks out for us. We can love others because God has loved us more deeply than we could ever understand. We can build others up because we know that even if others tear us down, God will build us up. We can give instead of take because we know God gives us what we need. We live thankful to God and generous towards others. And when we do so, we are living as God created us to live which is ultimately a benefit to us and for those around us. If you have a car, like I assume many of you do, that runs on gasoline, and you decided for some reason, I don't know, maybe you thought gas was getting a little too cheap, and so you wanted to start putting diesel in it just to, so you're, you didn't have too much money. Uh, if you put diesel in that car, it doesn't matter how much diesel you put in that car. It doesn't matter what else you do to try to get that car to run as it used to when it ran on gasoline. It's not going to run as it is supposed to at all because you're violating the way that that car's creator created it to function. And when we reject the ways of God in our life, when we try to do things on our own terms, when we live a life of selfishness, of greed, of pleasure-seeking apart from God, we're dumping diesel into a gasoline tank and wondering why it won't work. God created us for life with him. Among a community of people who view one another as worthy equals because of what Jesus has done for us, it's a community where we love one another and because we do so, no one's made the butt of a joke. It's a community where we, because we love one another, no one takes advantage of anyone else because that's how God's acted towards us. It looks like a group of people filled with God's spirit caring for one another as God has cared for us as we walk in love. And that walk in love is done because of what God has already done for us in anticipation of what he will do in the future. God has already brought us out of darkness and into light, therefore the half of this passage calls us to walk in anticipation of the day when, when that will be made true completely. The life that Paul has called the Ephesians away from, that's not a life that they've read about or heard on the news or knew in theory. It is the life that they knew before they met Jesus. They were the ones who were in darkness, but the message of Jesus has come to them in light, and therefore they should break with that life they have known. They should not seek partnership with that which they know leads to death. They've left that behind to take hold of something new, and therefore they should not hold on to anything that might bring them back into darkness. And the same is true for us. Because when you've been brought into the light, going back into the darkness makes no sense. This fall, I was able to get my student loans paid off. And yet, in the months or so since then, I've gotten a few emails from my loan provider that have said, hey, here's what you need to know about your upcoming student loan payments. And there's been a part of me that's thought, do I, did I make a mistake? Do I, did I do something wrong? Have I forgotten something? You know, are they going to get me? Are they going to show up at my house? So I log into the portal and I look at everything, and sure enough, that account balance is still zero, regardless of what my email inbox is telling me. And when that's the case, it makes no sense that message that is not true. Like when the, when the balance on the account is zero, it would be insane to keep sending money to pay off that debt because the debt has all been paid and that is what Paul is saying in this passage he's saying you've come out of darkness and into light so don't go back into the darkness it doesn't control you anymore it doesn't dictate your actions any longer it has no power over you live in the truth live in the light because Jesus has brought you into it 
Because the only way darkness can get in when there is light is if you turn the lights out. If you, if you think about it, if we wanted to get this room completely dark right now, we couldn't just make it happen automatically. I'm a little afraid to see this because there are teenagers in the sound booth close to the light switches right now. And I'm afraid of what they might be inspired to do in these next minute, this next minute or so. But if you think about what it would take to make this room completely dark, sure, we could flip all these lights off right now, and it would be darker in here, but we still have all these windows around the room, so there's still going to be a lot of light coming in. And sure, we could go through all the trouble and covering up all these windows, try to block out as much light as possible, but the chances are that light is still going to get through if there is any opening at all all and if we're following Jesus the light has come into our lives so it makes no sense to live in darkness it makes no sense to walk around with eyes closed it makes no sense to try to cover up all the windows because the light will always break through and so we walk in light and as we do so we show the world a better way and yet we don't do that against Paul doesn't say in these verses, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and so circle the wagons and just wait it out. The church is light in the darkness, and therefore we are different, and we are set apart. And while we recognize that difference, we do not allow it to keep us away from those still in darkness. We're called to live in light in order to call others to the light of Christ. Paul reminds the Ephesians of the life they knew before they met Jesus, not because he's trying to say, aren't you glad you're not as messed up as you used to be, but because to see what they were invite those still in the darkness into light. Because the, the behaviors Paul has condemned in this past, impurity, sexual immorality, idolatry, everything else, all those things are shameful and they belong to the darkness. And they remain there because they cannot exist in the light. If you look at the statistics of when violent crimes are committed. It's pretty consistent that the hour of the day where it is least likely for a violent crime to be committed is between 5 and 6 in the morning. And the time of day where it is most likely for a violent crime to be com committed is between 9 and 10 at night. And I think that is a perfect example of what Paul's saying in these verses. Darkness provides a cover for things we would never dream of doing during the day. And Paul says here that when you know the things that are in the darkness, even though now that you are walking in the light, you are called to expose the darkness, whether they're in your own hearts, whether they're in the world around you, because light is a powerful disinfectant. And when the light of the gospel shines in our hearts and in the world, it cleanses those that allow it to do its work. God's people are called to shine the light of the gospel so that our world can be cleansed. But this call is not to live in the light so that everyone can know we're better than them. It's to do away with the darkness in ourselves and in the world around us so that the light can do away with places. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 13 that everything that is illuminated becomes a light. His breaks down a little bit right there, but I think it's true. The goal is not to live in light in order to condemn everyone that doesn't, but to model what it looks like to live in the light well so that those in the darkness might come into that light. And that's why verse 14 concludes this passage with a, with a hymn, a poem from the early church. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. No matter who you are, the light of the gospel has come to wake you up, so let it shine. 
This is the life we've been created to live. God made humanity in his created us to reflect his glory. He created us to partner with him in extending his rule and reign over the earth. He created us to imitate him, to live in a relationship with him. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the way has been made available for us to have that light. God's inviting us to walk in his footsteps. He's inviting us to grow into all that we've been created to be, to walk in good works, to walk worthy of the calling that we've received as we walk in love and walk in light of the good news of Jesus. So if you can hear my voice, the light of the gospel is calling you to wake up. The light of Jesus shines into our darkness that we might have life. We need the light of the gospel and we need to shine that light into the darkness of ourselves and our world so that God's love might be known. Jesus said that his people would be like a city on a hill that would be visible for miles and miles around. He said his people would be like a lamp that illuminates a dark room, and that is what God has called us to be. But within that thought, he's not saying that the people up on top, the city in the city on top of a hill are looking down at the people struggling to try to climb the slope to them. We're called to be people that are looking to God in all things as we walk in his footsteps. And when we follow the example of Jesus, I think what we'll find is that we find ourselves going down the hill to find those struggling in the darkness so that they can be healed in the light. That's what Jesus did for us. He came to earth with his light so that we might be led out of darkness. He calls us to go into the world in the same way. As we shine in the darkness, as we are that city on a hill, beacon inviting others to come home to life with their God. And so we are left with the question of how to respond. I said earlier, this call to be imitators of God, these two questions, and the first one was, how do we do this? And I think Paul gives us plenty of material to try to answer that question. Because if we desire to imitate God, to walk in his footsteps, we will be thankful to him and generous towards others. We will get rid of behavior and actions that lead to death and take on his light and life. So that's a start to the answer to that first question. The second question is whether or not we are doing it. And I don't ask that question to try to make you feel bad or anything like that. I ask because I dream about what it would be like to be a part of a church where this was true. I dream about being a part of a group of people that loves one another, that has no sin hidden in the closet, that does not view others as a means to an end, where everyone looks out for each other instead of for themselves. A group of people where everyone is valued and loved, where everyone is built up in conversation shared together instead of being put down behind their back. A group of people that desires to glorify God in the present in anticipation of the redemption he will bring in the future. A group of people that imitates Jesus in all things, loving and serving one another into the light and life of the gospel. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church our world needs. That's the kind of church I hope and pray that we can be. And that's the kind of church I hope you want to be a part of and want to help bring about. This passage tells us what we are to do, and we are left with the question of whether or not we will do it. Maybe today's the day for some of us to make that decision that I've never committed to following Jesus, so today's the day I'm stepping out of darkness, I'm stepping into the light of, and love of the gospel, I'm waking up, I'm walking out of my tomb so that I can have life with our God. Maybe some of us have taken steps into the light, 
but we've also retreated back into the darkness. And today's the day that sin needs to be confessed so that that can end. Maybe some of us have hurt that we need to process. We need to reach out to someone who will walk alongside us and pray with us and encourage us so that we can know the light of the gospel and how it shines into all of our darkness. If you are struggling, please don't do it on your own. Because the light of the gospel has come to do away with our darkness. The love of God has come to wake us up out of our tombs so that we can have life with our God. May we do that together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the light and the love that you've shown us through your son, Jesus. We thank you for the calling to pursue life with you in all things. And so, God, we need your wisdom. We don't stand here, sit here this morning and think that we can do that because do what this passage says because we're really great people. We ask that your spirit would be present among us, that your love would overflow out of us so that these things might come about through us. God, we ask for your will to be done in all things through us, that we would walk in love and light as we follow your footsteps wherever you lead us. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.